Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. And while you're doing that, you can get your core guide out as well. Little devotionals on the inside, nice blank spot on the front cover so you can jot some notes down to discuss with your core groups. And uh, while you are finding your place in the book of Acts, we'll be in chapter 11 today. One announcement that I forgot was uh, we have a little reception called Coffee with the Pastors, and it's just an opportunity for our pastoral staff to get to know you. So if you are new or visiting with us uh, right after the conclusion of this service, if you go out the worship center doors and immediately to your right into our library, I'd invite you uh, into that um, reception. So you are in Acts, but I wanted to open by reading a a couple verses uh, from the prophet Isaiah in uh, chapter 43. Now, to give you a little bit of context for where these verses are coming from, uh, the people have sinned just a few times and in their past, and God has uh, sent them off into exile. So they are in a foreign land, away from their country, their homeland, and these words come to them in in the midst of, of their exile, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now the, the people are they're in exile, and they are imagining a new day. They're hoping that, that, that God will come around, forgive them, would restore them, would, would bring them back to their homeland. And for some reason, I think I know why, God reminds them, hey, forget the former things. Don't, don't dwell on the things of the past. See, the people had lodged in their mind that, that the way that God would save them now would look like the way that he had saved them in the past, and so they were, they were, in essence, trying to go backwards in time to experience the future that God had for them. And God said, you know, that was good, that whole exodus out of Egypt thing. I acted in very mighty and powerful ways, but that's not the only way that I can do that. So what I want you to do is to, to look around for the new thing that I have going on in the world. Look for new ways that you might experience my salvation. Now, that's a, a large, that's a big concept, a, a, a big idea. And I, th- I think that you would agree with me that when a new or a big idea comes around, that these sorts of ideas, they're often opposed, aren't they? They're often resisted. Um, when, when something new, something is about to change, the idea, the concept, when it's presented to the whole, uh, oftentimes is, there's a pushback, like, eh, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. And for these sorts of ideas, these big 
new ideas. For these big ideas to succeed and to move forward, it usually requires that at least one person, sometimes organizations, get behind the idea and are fierce promoters and defenders of the new idea. Otherwise, the resistance oftentimes is enough to just squelch a lot of really good new ideas. But God is doing this new thing, and there are new ways, creative things that God can do, powerful things that God can do to redeem, restore, and forgive his people. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah okay. We're on the same page so far. Um, this new big idea that God had is presented to us in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. It's not just a poster that goes up at football fields. It's a verse in the Bible, and you probably know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, right? Okay. We agree with that big idea. Yes? Um, we would say, is God representative of love? Is God love? Yes, we'd say that. Is God's gift to us, to the world, his son? Yeah, we, would, we don't really have a problem with that. We could, we could affirm that. Um, is faith or is a belief in his son the key to our salvation? We would, most of us would say, yes, absolutely. We don't have any problems with that. Does God love the entire world? Now, we say that, but that's the one right there. That God presents this new, big idea. That's the one part of, that oftentimes is pushed back on, like, oh, does God love the entire world? We know the proper Sunday school answer to the question. We know the biblical answer to that question is yes, without a doubt, God loves the entire world. But because it's a new, challenging idea, sometimes, and all throughout our past, it has been an idea that's been resisted. Because there's, well, Quite frankly, there's some people in our existence that once in a while you might think, oh, I hope God doesn't love that person because I really don't right now. The sin of Jonah is, Jonah's in the Bible for a couple reasons. One of the main reasons I think the story of Jonah is in the Bible is because he represents so many of our thoughts. God asked him to go and preach the gospel, preach forgiveness, preach repentance to Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah had been witness to all of the ways that the Assyrians had brutalized the people of Israel. And somewhere in the back recesses of Jonah's mind, he knew his scripture. He knew that, that God is a loving God who shows compassion and mercy and is a God who forgives. 
And Jonah did not want to go preach forgiveness and repentance to the people of Nineveh. Because he certainly didn't think that God could love those people there. So this idea, even presented to Jonah, hey, go preach this message of repentance, is, is resisted. Does God love the whole world? That's one that we have to do a little bit of work on sometimes. The, the book of Acts, from start to finish, really, we, we are introduced uh, to a whole bunch of characters. We're introduced to this... Um, this sect that came up out of Judaism and uh, this Jesus movement that became what we know of as the, as the church. Uh, we are introduced in Acts to all the people in this organization that are going to take up this big idea of God and are going to be the champion of this idea to the rest of, of the world. That's really what the story of Acts is, is telling us about. And we, are, we were introduced a couple weeks ago to a character named Saul, who we might know better as Paul, who becomes this uh, global or this missionary that he takes the word of God to the Gentile people. And, and Paul, he talks, about, um, he, he talks about how in Jesus there are no longer any distinctions between people groups. People groups, and so in, in Galatians, if you want to jot these down, I'm going to, I'm going to read you a couple of scripture uh, passages. Um, so Galatians three, verses twenty six to twenty eight, Paul writes: So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So everybody becomes one in Christ. He, he uh, writes about it again to the uh, Colossian church. So Colossians uh, chapter 3, about verse 9 uh, says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So he keeps writing about this concept that... Um, we become one in Christ. And one other passage, jot this down, Ephesians 2, uh, 14 to 16. Paul writes, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. So in this case, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, uh, one, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. So when the temple was constructed, the temple in Jerusalem, the innermost courts where people would go to worship the Lord, there was a dividing wall all around that, and there was a, what's called the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were a Gentile, you could walk into the temple structure, but you could only go so far, and there was a barrier. There was a wall. There were signs that said, keep out. You're not allowed 
You, you, you're unclean. You, you can't go past this dividing barrier. And Paul says, in Jesus, he has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Paul is, is talking about the ways in which Jesus dismantled barriers that we often put up between ourselves and, and other people. Using, case in point, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. That was the big one back then. The Jews had been set apart to follow these things for a specific purpose, to bless and to reach out and shine God's light to the Gentiles. But over time, it had just become a barrier, a dividing wall of insiders and, and outsiders. Luke, Luke loves thinking about this. Uh, in the ancient world, you could say religion was tribal. Uh, it was very much an us and them understanding. Uh, and so, you can have your religion. That's fine. We have ours, but God loves us. We have the blessing, we have the temple, that, you know, that you can do your own thing, that, that's fine, but, you know, we can draw a line uh, around ours. But God's doing a new thing among them. He had blessed them to be a blessing to others. That's the promise that, that goes all the way back to when he, God first formed his people with Abraham. God's big new idea was to send Jesus to the planet so he could break down all these walls, these barriers of hostility and division. And so now in Christ, there's no distinguishing any longer. And Luke, he, he keeps this theme uh, continually coming up in the book of Acts. And so, so far, just a, a quick review. In, in Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out on, uh, on peoples of the world. At this point, at, in Acts 2, there were Jewish people from all parts of the known world at the time, all spoke different languages, and they come, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on all of the representatives here. You get to Acts, uh, move forward a little bit to Acts chapter 6, and we're introduced to a man named Stephen who ends up being martyred for his faith. And when Stephen is martyred, it, it launches this um, season of intense persecution against the church. And all of these uh, new believers in Christ, they are dispersed to all parts of the map. And as they go, we're told that they went preaching the gospel of Jesus. So, the, the word, the gospel, Jesus is going out to all of these places. Then we flip over a couple pages and we get to Acts chapter 8 and we learn about a guy named Philip and he takes the gospel to Samaria. Oh, Samaria, 
you know, that's, there's a little animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. They're, they're related. They share a lot of the same religious sorts of things, but there's a clear dividing line, and Philip just went right across it, preached them the message. The Holy Spirit came out on the, on, upon the people of Samaria. Uh, so the gospel is going out. God is he's reaching out to the world. A little bit later, uh, Philip meets this uh, guy from Ethiopia, which we talked a few weeks ago, was representative of the ends of the earth. And so what had been promised in Acts 1, that, that the Holy Spirit would come on this group of people and would empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it's happening. Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. He's converted, and we're told that he would be the one who carries the name of God to the Gentile people. And then we get into uh, chapter uh, 10. And last week we started talking about Peter's interaction with a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And we learned that salvation could come even to this Gentile's household and by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, the gospel has reached out to um, a city called Antioch. And Antioch, when the gospel takes root in that city, that if you don't know much about Antioch, uh, Syrian Antioch is the third, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So you had Rome, I think Alexandria was second, and Antioch was the third largest city. And it was kind of poised to be the center of commerce, east and west and north and south. So you had people from all over the globe in Antioch. And the, the gospel took root there. And that church, more than any other church, is the one that's responsible for taking the gospel out to the world. This was the home church of, of Saul, who, who we know as Paul. This is the church that launched Paul into all of his missionary uh, endeavors. So in chapter 10 of, of Acts, Luke, Luke takes all of chapter 10 and half of chapter 11 to tell us the story of, of Cornelius and Peter. It's a pivotal moment. This is the longest thing that Luke pauses on because it's such a critical crisis point in this young church. What's the identity of, of this people going to be? Are they going to take on the identity of Christ who brings down, who dismantles all of those barriers, or are they going to revert back to what they know and are they going to draw lines around who they think is recipient and, and included in the gospel message? That's what's at stake here. And if you remember, um, in chapter 10, um, Cornelius has a vision. And in the vision, he's told that he should call for Simon Peter um, and have him come up to his house. And then, so then we move from that episode, and then there's this little vignette where Peter has a vision. And the, there's a, a blanket, a sheet that comes down from heaven, and it's filled with all sorts of unclean creatures, the ones that are listed in Leviticus as the ones that the, the Jews should not 
participate in, you don't, don't eat any of these. These will render you unclean. And God tells Peter, go ahead, kill and eat. Peter has this vision, and three times he has that vision, and then the sheet is pulled up, the vision's over, and he hears the Holy Spirit say, hey, there's some guys that are going to knock on your door right now, and it's okay for you to go with them. And Peter finds out that these are representatives of Cornelius's household. So he's, this is Gentile, Roman. And Peter is in Joppa at the time, which is a little coastal city. And to get from Joppa to Caesarea, where Cornelius's house was, he had to walk. The journey was about 30 miles north, kind of along the coastline. And we're told that that Peter brings a, a little entourage, at least six guys uh, go with him, and, and they go with these men from Cornelius' Cornelius's house up to Caesarea, which was uh, as Roman a town as you can. Herod had built Caesarea to honor uh, Caesar Augustus. So this is a Roman pagan Gentile town. Uh, unless you had specific business to get in and out, Jews didn't, that wasn't, a, that wasn't on their list of destination points to go visit in their off time. And here's Peter. He finds himself making this journey north. And I'm sure that there's some people that are shocked that he's actually following through and, and going along. I mean, I don't know, it doesn't say too much about the six guys that go along with him, but I can imagine that at least one or two of them are questioning him, him the whole time. Hey, I don't, I don't feel right about this, Peter. I'm, I, don't know, I don't know about this. Do you th I think maybe we should turn around. We don't know what's on the other end. This is a Roman centurion. We know what the Romans did to, to Jesus, and we might just be setting ourselves up, but they press on, and they go. And the gospel comes to that household and the message that Peter brings. And before Peter is even finished preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on that household and they're saved. And Peter is invited to stay at Cornelius's house for, and it says he was there for at least a few days. And so if you're, if you're at a place for a few days, you're probably going to eat, right? You probably need, probably need some food. Um, well, if you're in a Roman town, and this is Gentile territory, he's just had this vision three times that, hey, all the stuff in here, it's fair game now. Peter did find out that the, the vision wasn't so much about food as it was about people, but I'm thinking he's in Caesarea, he's probably trying some bacon-wrapped scallops, you know, you're in Caesarea, you might as well do what the Caesareans do. Um, do you like trying new things? I, wherever I go, I love trying the local flavor. Sometimes that's not always a good thing. Um, I remember I was on a missions trip, we were in Scotland, and they, the national dish of Scotland is called haggis. Have you heard of haggis? Do you know what haggis is made out of? You don't want to know what haggis is made out of. It's the insides of a sheep, heart, lung, liver, other sorts of things. It's all minced up and mixed with oatmeal and suet and whatever else they put in there. And then they stuff that all back into the stomach and they cook it in that. So, 
I'm in Scotland, and somebody says, do you want to try haggis? Well, I've heard about haggis, and, I'm, and I also know that I like trying the local flavors. And I also know that I'm enjoying somebody else's hospitality. So I tried it. I don't ever need to have haggis again. <laughs> but I tried it. I was in the deep south and went to a seafood restaurant that's just right on the Gulf. And I, of course, I asked for a recommendation from the server. What would you recommend? She's like, oh, try the crab po'boy. And I'm thinking, hey, I know what a po'boy is. I mean, I, I, in, my, in my mind, I have this picture of shredded crab meat you know, just dipped and dripping with that garlicky butter sauce on a, on a bun. And I was just so looking forward to that. And <laughs> this might be the only time audibly where, I, where I've gone <gasps> with a plate of food. <laughs> the plate of food comes, she sets it down in front of me. And she's made this recommendation. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go with the local flavor. And it's open-faced. And the whole crab had been deep fried. They take it out of the deep fryer and they put it right on, on the, the bottom part of the bun here. And so there's this crab and its little eyes are looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember saying, how am I supposed to eat this? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that, but... That, it just reminded me a little bit too much of Sylvester and Tweety when Sylvester tried to, you know, and eat Tweety and put him in the, in the sandwich and Tweety would poke his head out. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> is, that, is that crab cooked? You know, being willing to try things goes a long way in making a statement to the people whose fellowship you are enjoying that that you look at them as equals to you. And so Peter has entered this Gentile household. He's had the vision where God says, hey, don't, don't worry about it. It's okay. I can make anything clean. And it's a story about people, but it, Jesus had talked about the, the difference of what goes in isn't what defiles you, it what comes up and out of your heart, that's what really defiles you. And so Jesus had addressed these food-related laws. And so I think Peter is there and he's thinking, I might be a little uncomfortable right now. I might not know what's about to show up on my plate, but I'm here, let's eat. You know, I saw the Holy Spirit be poured out upon you. And it did some work in my own heart as well that we are now brothers and sisters in Christ, so we might as well break, food, you know, break bread together. I think, if you ask me, I think Peter liked it. I think he enjoyed being there. He might have been nervous along the way. I'm thinking he's surely thinking, I don't know how I'm going to explain this back at headquarters. But all in all, I think, I think he liked it. I think he might have even bought a souvenir, too. You know, the, the shirt that says, you know, what happens in Caesarea stays in Caesarea. <laughs> he might have gotten a little bumper sticker for his ox cart that says, I survived the ham hock experience, you know. 
God had clearly, clearly prepared him for this very moment. And now Peter understands what it's all about. But it leads to a scandal. Somehow, while Peter is just a couple days in Caesarea, somehow word made its way back all the way to headquarters in Jerusalem. And people are all in a tizzy. Hey, did you hear what Peter did? Do you know where he's at right now? Do you know what he's doing? All the criticisms and the the skepticisms and all of those isms rise up in people. And they're thinking, hey, when he gets back, he's got some explaining to do. And Peter goes back, we learn. Chapter 11. The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. In other words, they're saying you defiled yourself. You enjoyed fellowship with them. We were, were Jews, Peter. We don't do things like that. And they, they just called him out and criticized him. Well, I, we need to be careful because these people had every right to question him about what he was doing. Because at this moment, Peter was the only one privy to the vision that God had given him. And so to the people back in Jerusalem who are, you know, to some degree were guardians of our faith, and in their mind and in what their eyes were telling them was that Peter was recklessly abandoning critical points of their faith. So they had every right to question him about this. The challenge is okay. It's all right to call one another out and to ask questions when we think, you know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that. That doesn't seem to be lining up with our faith principles. We, we ought to be able to ask those sorts of questions of one another. It's called accountability, and it's a healthy thing when it's done in the right way. When you, when you go to critique or to question somebody, you better go with a moldable and pliable heart because you just might learn something about the ways that in which God is moving in the world that you might be totally blind to at the moment. You know, there's a, there's a healthy way to question people, and then there's what normally happens. Um, quite often, criticism that is leveled uh, is divisive. It's mean-spirited, and, and it's oftentimes criticism that is leveled over things that what we would put in the category of non-essentials. They fit into the category of, you know, I would just... This is what I prefer, and you're not, you're not doing things how I prefer, and so I'm going to criticize you about it. That's oftentimes what happens. 
Well, let's look and see how these people, what kind of a spirit they went to Peter with. In, in verse 4, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Now, do you notice that Peter didn't belittle them because they had questions? Peter didn't get upset that they were criticizing him. He just said, hey, that's great, I, I understand. I was, I was in the same place where you are right now just a few days ago. I thought the same way. But let me, let me tell you the whole story. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send a Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's recounting this whole story. We've talked about it. Luke makes a point to make sure that we get this inside us at least two times so that it can work its way into the deep recesses of our thinking and that we can also learn the lesson that, that Peter did. He says, God gave them the Holy Spirit just like it happened to us. But that verse, isn't, that's not the end of that verse. It says, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? I saw where the Holy Spirit was working and leading. I saw, I saw this happen, just like it happened to us. And Peter comes to the recognition that I could, I could be an obstacle right now. I could get in the way of the work of God by holding them to the same standards. Like, Gentiles could become Jews, but there was a clear process by which they would renounce the Gentile word, world and they would take on the same traditions as the Jewish people. Eating laws, circumcision, all those sorts of things. In this moment, Peter recognizes, I could be like the guy driving in the left lane really slow. And I could impede the progress of these people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
But who am I to stand in the way of what God is doing? Verse 18. When they heard this, so these are the people who are criticizing Peter. Peter. When, when they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the criticism, questions, brought with a moldable and pliable heart, thinking, hey, we might learn something here. In connection with Peter's answer, it brought to a sense of unity among these people. Hey, this big idea of God is happening, and we, we hear your story. You got to see it take place. Who are we to stand in the way? Praise the Lord that even the Gentiles can now receive forgiveness and salvation. These people found a way to move beyond the boundaries that they had drawn, and you could say that God was calling them to move beyond where they were to where they needed to be so that they could meet the demands of a changing world. But we got to say this debate is far from over, especially for this early church, because, you know, it's... uh, at one level, it's, it's okay. Peter went up to Cornelius' house, and so one Gentile house was converted. That's, that's okay to imagine it as a, you know, hey, this is something we can control. Everybody likes a token Gentile. And so this is okay at this point, but Paul is about to come into the, to the story again, and Paul is about to be launched into his missions, journeys, out into the Gentile world, and we're about to have thousands of Gentiles come to faith and enter into the church, and that, my friends, is another big problem. It's one thing when it's just a household, but the floodgates are going to open here shortly, and they're even going to have to have a council meeting over this. So we read a story like this. There's certainly things that we can pick up along the way, but um, what, what are some of the implications that we have? Uh, there's one that we talked about last week, and that, that um, one implication is that since God makes no distinctions in his kingdom, then we don't have the right to make the distinctions either. And that's a really hard lesson to learn. God, please help us with that. We, we like... We like to see people come to faith, but sometimes we have the tendency to put people on probation. Like, you're just a junior member until you've lived long enough in the way till we can see that your life has actually changed. And this whole story blows that thinking out of the water. We have no right to think about that. Think about people's conversions in that way. God doesn't make the distinction here. They are welcomed fully into the family of God, full participants, full members, full privileges of salvation, full heirs 
to everything that everybody else is. The second implication is, you know, it's a clear call to keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We're responsible for getting word out. We are the ambassadors of, of God's message to take it to the world, to be the light to the nations. But we can trust that, that the gospel will do its work. So far in Acts, just sharing and preaching the message has taken it from Jerusalem, where it started, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to Caesarea, to this Roman household. The gospel is going out. The gospel is doing its work, and God is changing hearts and lives. Third implication um, is a little bit more challenging uh, because some changes are inevitable. And change is always challenging because it's very easy for us to hang on to what we know, what we have known, the places we've been, the experiences that we have had personally, the things that we like, we hold on to those things, and when anybody suggests that, hey, there's a new big idea out there, and there may be some change that has to go along with it, we're not always on board with the change because it might affect us. The skepticism and the criticism starts to come out. It's not how we do it. It's not how we've done it. Let me give you an example of, because most of the time when the, when the skepticism and criticism, criticism comes out, it's about smaller stuff. So we launch into our district assembly tonight. The business meetings start tomorrow. For years, when you go up, when you show up at district assembly, if you're a delegate, or representative of your local church, they give you a binder, a printed packet of information that has all of the reports, nicely tabbed pictures and graphs and, you know, the statistical charts. And you can sit there in your district assembly and you can page through a book. I like books. Well, you know what? This year, it's all electronic. They're taking the books away. Now, if you want a book, you can print your own book. They've said that. But there's going to be skepticism, there's going to be criticism that happens tomorrow up at, up at the district assembly. I know it because we've always had a book and somebody is going to criticize the decision. Now, would I prefer to have a binder? Yes, I'm a paper book kind of a guy. But you know what? I love our district superintendent. I think that he is an awesome leader, and if this is the way that we need to go to streamline some things and make it better, I'm all for it. So I'm going to be an ambassador of the change for him. Whenever somebody steps out and says, hey, this is a bad idea, I just want to say, you know what? There's some good things about it, too. Because you know what? The whole binder now fits right here. I got the, I got the whole district report already on an app on my phone. That's pretty cool. But you know what? There's changes like that that happen that the people of God just, you know, we have a difficult time sometimes wrapping our minds around. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, these things that we hold on to can quickly become obstacles for other people 
in receiving Jesus. Because you never know when you're at Starbucks and you're griping about whatever, and people can tell that you are people who proclaim and profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. The general public knows enough about Jesus, they've heard the word Jesus and love in the same sentence, I guarantee it. And when all they hear is a spirit of criticism, without the rest of the story maybe, even if it's warranted and legitimate, it can become an obstacle. I don't want to be one of those people who just gripe and complain about everything. People can observe your behaviors. They hear the words that you say. Sometimes we allow all of these things to, um, well, we put up obstacles. And Jesus came to take all the obstacles away. To, to join Jews and Gentiles. I'm for everybody. But we have this way of hanging on to things that we love, our past. I, I've told you this story before. My, I, I like monkey stories. And I was at a zoo one time, and there was a baby monkey, and it was just learning how to swing from rope to rope in the exhibit. And over here, the monkey was was up on the little perch, and mom was right here. Mom is safe, mom is secure, mom is comfortable. I know this one over here. The monkey is hanging on and, and dangling from this rope over here on the edge. And, um, and so the monkey knows that, that he's secure here. But over there is just this exotic, you know, the other monkeys are swinging and woohoo and everything. And, and so this little baby monkey is thinking, man, I want... I want some of that big, new, awesome idea over here. And, and mom is, I don't know, in monkey language, I'm not going to try and repeat it, is I think trying to coax the little one, it's okay, it'll be all right, just jump off and you'll swing over here and you'll grab the rope and it'll swing you off into the party. Well, the little monkey over here finally jumps, swings through like this and grabs the other rope right here, but doesn't let go. And so now we have a monkey in the middle. (laughs) One hand clutching to the past, to what is known, to what is comfortable, to what is safe and secure. Mom's over there. And and the unknown over here, it looks exciting. It's a brand new big idea, but I don't know if I can let go of that. You know, sometimes we hang on to things on this side over here for way too long, and it prevents us from swinging through to what God is doing new and in our future. And when we hang on to this too long, sometimes it, gets in, it, it prevents other people from seeing the vision of God too. Remember the verse that we read in Isaiah? Forget the former things. Don't focus on the past like that. Let go of this over here. It's given you a solid foundation. We're not asking to change or accommodate people's sins, but sometimes changes need to happen. We can present the gospel in meaningful ways to the culture around us without changing the message of the gospel. So, we can adapt to the, the climate of the world that's around us without tainting the message. 
Peter didn't go to the house of the Gentile and say, you know what, all those idols and all of this, you know, the sinful stuff that you have in your house, he didn't say, oh, this is now affirmed and blessed, this is not sin anymore. He didn't say that. This was not an accommodation of sin. This was a clear call-out transformation. You need to leave a life of sin and you need to enter into the new thing that God is doing. So when we talk about changes and presentation out into the world around us, we're not saying that we are going to change what the gospel actually says. We're not changing definitions of sin. What we're doing is we're presenting the gospel message, the full weight of it in a way that is meaningful and contextually relevant to the people who are now poised to receive it. Because God is out there doing a work ahead of us, changing people's hearts and lives, and he calls us into that work. Change is challenging, I know. But think about what a beautiful picture of a church willing to adapt in some ways. What a picture of sacrificial love that is to people. When we would lay aside our personal preferences, you know, I'd rather have a printed book. But if, you know, if this is the right way to go, then that's fine. That's a silly example. It's meant to be. Because there's a lot more really serious examples. You know, I'm willing to lay aside this preference if the way we do it now would reach out to a whole lot of people who don't know Jesus yet. That's sacrificial love. And it's worth it, my friends. It's worth it. So let's all work on, pray about being ambassadors of the gospel that are willing to go to places to cross those lines, to bring down the divisions that we have and work towards a unified people that Jesus has called us to be in his name. The people of God said.